normal. And so we're going to have the choir stay up here for the whole time. And we're going to be doing some Easter music as well as some uh, presentation of, uh, of a narrative of what happened on that first Easter morning. We hope that what we've planned is enlightening as well as encouraging, edifying to your spirit. In the preparation for that part of the service, what we're going to be doing is some singing. And we'll be taking up an offering this morning for our church family to be able to give the regular collection. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are delighted that you're here and you're our guest. We don't expect you to put anything in the plate. You weren't invited so we could do a fundraiser or anything of that sort. You feel free to just let the plate pass by and feel no obligation to put anything in. If you do, thank you, but you don't have to. You're our guest this morning. As well, what we're going to be doing in the services, typically we do a whole Bible study where the majority of our service is just taking our Bibles and looking at a text. We're going to do it more in a narrative this morning, so that'll be a little bit different, but I trust that what we've planned will be an encouragement to your heart. Let me lead in a word of prayer, and let's start singing then after that a video, and then we'll start singing unto the Lord and celebrating His resurrection this day. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have on this Easter morning to get together with family and friends. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to have a breakfast together and fellowship. And now we gather together to worship you, to give you thanks, to give you praise, and especially on this, that the anniversary date of your resurrection, we thank you so much for coming out of that tomb, for being alive, so we can talk to you right now and knowing that because you're alive, we have the hope for eternity to be with you one day. We pray that that one day would come soon, but until then, help us to honor you, help us to magnify you, help us to worship you with spirit and in truth from our hearts this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We celebrate not Christ on the cross, but the fact that he is risen, and he is risen indeed, that Christ the Lord is risen today. Christ the Lord is risen today. Savior, not a dead person in the ground, but a risen Savior. I serve a risen 
sound like you mean it, that he's alive. That's a great news to know that Jesus Christ is alive and he can live within our heart. We want to share that. If you aren't sure about that story, we want to share that with you this morning. And before we do that, we're going to take up that time of a collection this morning. So we're going to ask the ushers to come. And as they come, let me lead us in prayer for the offering. We'll have a special and then we'll get into our program as well. Father, we thank you so much that we can sing here this morning about your greatness, your goodness, the fact that you are alive. Thank you, Lord, for that assurance that promise, that great work that you did. And we thank you that we can gather like this with freedom this morning, that we can gather together with family and friends. And we ask that you would continue to bless the service. And when the kids have the junior churches, that the presentation to them would be on their level where it would encourage them and help them to understand and appreciate the Easter story even better. And Father, we pray that you would take these gifts that we give you at this time, that you would use them for your glory, that you would be pleased by our offering. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, ladies. As Pastor mentioned, yep. As Pastor mentioned, we do have a children's uh, church ministry for those three years old through the sixth grade. If you want to head out the back, you get your own chimes music to head on out. It's like just this little fairies heading on out. Heading out, seeing Pastor Tony in the back, all out the back door. And the rest of us who are in here, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, My hope is Jesus, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I absolutely love this weekend, the anniversary of the two greatest miracles that happened in our nation's history. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit confused. I was told that this morning I'd be speaking to a group of rabbis, scholars, Jewish students of the Word of God, 
I'm so, I don't mean to imply that you're not scholars and that you aren't students of the Word, but you definitely aren't a Jewish audience. By the way you look in your attire, it strikes me that you are some of the wealthiest people in the entire empire of Rome. And uh, I'm thinking you're from Rome, or maybe you are from one of those far-off eastern countries that we read about that has a lot of strange cultures and clothing. But again, I don't mean to be rude. I'm just a little bit confused. This wasn't quite what I expected. So let me back up a little bit and let me uh, introduce myself and, and explain a little bit to you what I was going to explain, but maybe a little bit more in depth because you might not know about the anniversaries I just mentioned. My name is Simon. I'm a Jew. I hail from the province of Judea, the northern part of that province in a region called Galilee. My father was a fisherman, his father before, and I followed in that trade until one day I met the most amazing man. Jesus came and he gave me a new profession and now I go about and I teach and I speak and some call me a philosopher. I prefer to call myself a proclaimer of the good news the gospel of Jesus. I mentioned that this is the weekend of anniversaries. That's because in my nation's history, the Jewish history, there's great events that happen that on this weekend we celebrate. The one goes back many, many generations ago. At the beginning of our history, our forefather Abraham had moved out of that region of the eastern world and come into what is today called Palestine or Judea. He settled there and he lived there for a while and raised his sons. And then a couple generations later, his family had been expanding and growing. But they all of a sudden faced the most serious famine that had ever struck that part of the earth. They were invited to move down into Egypt where there was plenty, where they would be cared for and they'd be welcomed. And the entire clan of the Hebrews, as they were called then, moved down there and lived in peace and security and prosperity until... Time went by and a new generation of rulers over Egypt came on the scene. Those new rulers became jealous of the prosperity of the Hebrews. They felt threatened by that, so they started to impose rules and regulations upon them and eventually forced them into an area of servitude and bondage. And it was by the blood and the sweat and the very lives of many of my ancestors that many of those runes those monuments in Egypt had been built. My people were in bondage. And they began to cry to the Lord God, their Jehovah, to free them, to come and rescue them. Four hundred years went by that they were in this servitude, in shackles, beaten and downtrodden. And then God sent a deliverer, the great prophet of old, his name was Moses. He came and gave a message to my people, a message of hope and comfort and of God's deliverance that was coming. He also gave a message to Pharaoh and to his court. And he warned them that if they did not obey and do what God said, that they would be punished. Pharaoh, in his pride, refused to let the people go, demanded that they stay and they, they work harder God, with his mighty hand, began to bring the Egyptians low. He started to strike them with a series of 
miracles we call plagues. They were humbled over time. But not before the anniversary weekend of the greatest of those miracles took place. It is this week that we Jews celebrate the last and final miracle where God brought about the deliverance of our ancestors from that bondage. We call the celebration Passover. What had happened is Moses came that day and he announced to all of our clansmen that that night God's mighty hand of wrath would come upon all those who would not trust and listen to his words. He told us, That what our peoples needed to do was to take a perfect lamb, a yearling, without spot, without any blemish, sacrifice that animal and take its blood, and put it upon the post of the door. Moses told us that if we stayed inside, then we would be protected from the wrath of God. We had to stay inside, not dare go out that entire night, no matter what they heard, no matter what my people's, thought was going on, stay behind the blood of the Lamb. There were some who did not listen. The Egyptians as a whole, they could not care less. They didn't believe anything would happen. That night, the wrath of God was poured out on Egypt. The angel of death came into every village, every hamlet, every town, and went from house to house to house. And any home where there was not the blood upon the door, the death angel went in and took the very breath and life of the firstborn. The wailing was immense. The grieving, the horror. The people were absolutely beside themselves in the agony of everyone losing a loved one in their home. But those who had hid behind the blood of the Lamb, were safe. My peoples who trusted in that Lamb, they were safe and secure. Even in the palace that morning, Pharaoh awoke, grieving at the sound and hearing the the news that his firstborn was dead. He, in his his grief and in his, his pain, demanded that my people be let go, forced out of the city, forced out of the country. In mass, the Hebrews hurried away and headed for the land that God had promised them. But it wasn't long before Pharaoh had a change of heart. His pain and agony became bitterness, anger, revenge. He was going to kill those Hebrews, or for sure those he didn't kill, he was going to bring back and put them into greater bondage than ever. He gathered what troops were able to stand through their own sorrow. And he rode out of the city after our ancestors. The two bodies of peoples collided at the very shores of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army intent on killing, maiming, putting under the sword, and back into captivity, the Hebrews, that once again had to call upon Jehovah God for deliverance. The great miracle took place. All of a sudden... A valley was formed between mountains of water. My peoples went through on dry ground. But then, when Pharaoh and his army tried to follow after, 
There was an absolute earthquake of the torrents of the seas that came down upon them, crashing upon them, drowning every single one. My people reached the other side, safe, secure, free, delivered after 400 years, a free people. The rejoicing was, was just amazing. And they set aside the celebration to be remembered every year on this weekend. And they called it Passover. Because the angel had passed over their homes and they all survived. <laughs> it's a great weekend. It's a wonderful weekend of celebration to recall that we were freed from the shackles of bondage and slavery and became a people's who could move about and do with freedom what you can do, the way you move about. But I said there was two miracles. The other one, the anniversary of the second miracle, is in modern days, just a few years ago. It again had to do with a lamb, this time the Lamb of God. It started about three and a half decades ago when Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem. He lived a normal life, did the normal things until he was 30 years of age. That's the age that in my nation, people can start doing a public activity or leadership or ministry. And I remember so well the day that Jesus announced himself openly. I and some of my friends had gathered along the riverbank of the Jordan River. It had been 400 years, just like of old time, 400 years of total silence. We were praying and asking God to send a messenger, but there hadn't been anybody that had come from God in 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, a man came on the scene, declaring that he was a, an announcer, a proclaimer. He was calling out and telling us, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which so excited our hearts. If the kingdom of heaven is coming, then surely there must be a king. It must be the new deliverer, the modern Moses, who is going to lead us out of bondage and captivity. We were so excited. As I said, my brothers and friends, we gathered and we were listening to that man give his message. They called him John the Baptizer. And there he was on the other side of the Jordan, waiting in the water and speaking and proclaiming. And we were listening with rapt attention. We were catching every word. And suddenly he stopped. And he pointed towards the crowd. I saw something out of the corner of my eye. Somebody stepped out, emerged from the crowd and stepped into the water. He started wading across in the stream. And John, with his loud desert voice that would echo off the rock, said, Look! Look! The Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world! Could this be? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the promised one? We watched as John put him under the water, bringing him up in baptism. And then I said to my brother, we have to listen and we have to follow him. And we did. We followed after that Jesus and caught up with him later. We talked with him that day and the next day. And we told some of our friends about this amazing man. And over the next weeks and yea, into the next months and years, 
we followed him and we dedicated our lives to becoming some of his disciples and followers, he spoke amazing words. We never, ever heard in our synagogues anyone speak with the clarity of this Jesus. Nobody ever took the profound truths of the Word of God and made them so simple that even the children could understand. He was amazing. He spoke with compassion, with clarity, with profound speech, yet so simple. But he wasn't only amazing in his speech. You should have seen the things that he did. He was performing miracles, healing people who were deformed by diseases and by accidents. He was taking away people's, their, their pain and their, their discomfort because of broken bones and, and blood diseases. I tell you, this is true. I saw him on more than one occasion heal people who had never walked. There was one man who was born, so he was a cripple. Jesus healed that man. Not only could that man get up and stand, he never even practiced standing before. He never stumbled like we do as toddlers when we're learning to walk. This man who had never walked before stood up and he carried his possessions away with him. I remember the time when there was a person brought to Jesus who was deaf and dumb. Jesus, in an instant, allowed that person for the very first time to hear, to speak. Not only have the physical ability, but think about it. That person never heard language before. That person never formed words before, but instantly they understood language and speech. And didn't have to do the toddler thing of learning to form words. It was amazing. It happened time and time again. And then Jesus enabled me and my friends to go out and to tell about him and his teachings. And to even perform some of the same miracles. We were so thrilled. We were so excited. These days ought never to end. This is the best of days. This is the most glorious of times. We were convinced that they would just get better and better and better and better until he would set up his kingdom. We were thrilled. Now, you might find this hard to believe. But some people say I'm loud. Some people say at times, like my brothers, they say I'm a little bit brazen. My younger brother says I'm just plain obnoxious. My wife, she says that too often I just kind of blurt out things and put my feet in my mouth too often. I know that's hard to believe. But there was a couple occasions that I did that to my shame. One of those was one of those days we came back. We were gathered with Jesus and telling him about our tour of speaking and doing miracles when all of a sudden he stopped. He said to us, I am going to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be tried. They will kill me. What? I turned to him. And I spoke what everybody in our group was thinking. No way, Lord. 
There is no way you're going to Jerusalem if you're in danger. We won't let you. We are going to protect you. You are not going there. He turned to me with those dark brown eyes, all-knowing, all-searching eyes, he looked into my eyes. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. I was so ashamed of what I had said. I had spoken impulsively, demanding my will, telling the master what I wanted to be done. I walked away. I hid behind the rest of the followers and stayed at the back of the group for a while. And I determined I would keep my big mouth shut. I would never again do something that foolish to tell him what to do. But it happened again. He had told us on the celebration weekend of Passover in his third year of ministry to, that we were going to get together in Jerusalem. We were going to have that Passover meal. That anniversary meal to look back on the deliverance God gave hundreds of years earlier through that, from that death angel and from the Red Sea. And so I was assigned to get the meal ready. Now I don't know if any of you ever prepare meals since you pro- obviously have servants and individuals to wait upon you by the appearance of your wealth. But there's a lot of work to get a meal together. And so I had to go through getting that lamb chosen, that yearling that was spotless, and getting all the herbs and the spices, and getting the, making sure there was enough seats around the table. And I was kind of tired at the end of the day after all that work. And when we were headed to the place where we were going to meet, I'm thinking to myself, I should be able to sit next to Jesus in the place of honor since I did all this work. And one of my colleagues said to me, I deserve the place of honor. And within moments, the rest of them were demanding that they get the seat of honor. Now, they're my colleagues, but they can be idiots at time, if I, if I can be so blunt. And they can be rather selfish at times. That seat belonged to me. So, I determined if they're going to treat me that way and not give me the respect that I deserve... When we get there, I'm not going to do the customary deed of treating everybody the way that the host was supposed to treat them. In our land, in our culture, when you come in for that Passover meal, you lay down. You don't sit at a table. You kind of repose at the table this way and you stick your feet back out. And to make it comfortable, the one who is providing the meal or his servant, if they have servants... But who's ever in charge, not, not the honored guest, but whoever has put the meal on, they're supposed to go around and wash the feet of all the different people around the table to make them comfortable. I got to tell you, there was no way I was going to wash Nathaniel's feet or Bartholomew's feet. I had already worked hard enough that day. They can wash their own feet. And so we were there gathered and sitting, and we were ready to start. And Jesus got up, walked over to the cupboard, got a basin of water, came back, knelt down by the feet of Nathaniel, and started to wash them. Then he moved to Bartholomew, then to Judas. The room was in stunned silence. None of us dare say anything. 
we were all ashamed. We were embarrassed that none of us had taken the initiative. And when Jesus came to wash my feet, I blurted out what everybody was thinking. You will never wash my feet. It was inappropriate for Jesus to do that. He looked up at me with those eyes. Those all-knowing, piercing eyes. And he said, Simon, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have fellowship with me. Well, if that's the case, then give me a sitz bath. Wash me all over. He looked back at me again. His eyes smiling yet disappointed. And he rebuked me for I didn't understand. I tried to keep silent once again. And I determined that as we left that room that I was going to be loyal. Part of the reason was is after he washed our feet and we ate the meal, Jesus had announced to all of us that tonight you will desert me. No way. There is no way I would ever desert you, Jesus. I am loyal to you. I will stand by you. I will defend you. Now, he might, he might, he might, but I will never, ever, ever desert you. He looked at me with those eyes again, those piercing eyes, and he said, Simon, you will deny me three times before dawn and the crowing of the cock. No way. No way. I will die with you. I was so determined to guard my tongue, to be loyal to Jesus, that when we went out to the prayer area, and he sat down and he said to James and John and myself, would you pray with me an hour? I will pray. I will pray. I will not disappoint him once again. I will pray. And I knelt down and I started to pray and I started to pray and I started to pray, determined that I would not disappoint him again. I don't know what happened until there was a shaking of my shoulder and I looked up into those eyes and disappointment was overflowing as he said, couldn't you stay awake one hour? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I'll stay awake. I'll pray. He came back the next hour and shook me awake again. He came back a third time and shook me awake. How could I fall asleep when he wanted me to pray? How could, how could I possibly be telling him what to do? My spirit is willing, but boy, is my flesh weak. I keep on doing the things I don't want to do and shouldn't do. I keep on failing to do the things that I ought to do, but I don't. Is there any freedom? Is there any rescue from this bondage of the flesh that causes me to disappoint and disobey God time and time again? We heard the marching of the soldiers. They came into the garden. As they approached... I was going to be loyal. I was not denying him. I was going to defend him, so I drew my knife. The knife I used to fillet fish. 
I leapt at the very first person closest to me in that group of soldiers. Thankfully, he wasn't a soldier. He had nothing to defend himself with. And I'm not a good shot, if you would. I only caught his ear. But the soldiers with him immediately turned upon me. Jesus got between me and those soldiers, healed the man, and turned and looked at me again with those eyes, those all-knowing, all-piercing, all-compassionate eyes, and said to me, Peter, stop. I was so embarrassed that once again, once again I had disappointed him. I ran off with the others. But within minutes, I determined I am going to rescue Jesus. I am going to go back and I'm going to find out where they took him. And I went to the very place where Jesus was being tried that night. I worked my way into the courtyard and it was filled with clusters of servants from all the nobility of the Jewish leaders who had gathered to hold a trial at night, which was illegal. And I positioned myself there around some of those servants And I could hear them speaking in harsh tones about this Jesus and how he was going to be executed without a trial. They had already determined he was guilty. They're going to kill him and then they're going to get his disciples. And so I stood there, fear starting to move through my being, realizing that this was probably not a good move. I was in danger. But I maybe I could get to Jesus and cut the cords and help him escape. And I looked up into that chamber's windows trying to get a glimpse and I kept my mouth shut and somebody said, you're one of his followers. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I moved to another, another fire. Once again, you're one of his followers. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I moved again to another pyre of fire. And again, somebody said, you're one of his followers. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I heard it. The crowing of the cock. The breaking of the dawn. I looked up in shock and in horror at what I had just done. At that moment, he was passing through the door, the window area with guards, and he paused. And he looked into my eyes the disappointment the sorrow knowing what I had done that I had just denied Jesus I said I would die for him but I just denied him I thought I was so strong I thought I was so much better than the others but I had just denied my Lord Oh, that evening, he went through the trial. I lost myself in the city alleys, not wanting to see his face once again, lest the shame and the hurt would be magnified again. But I followed the crowd to Golgotha. I stayed back, not wanting to get too close, lest somebody recognize me again. Not wanting to get too close, lest if I dared look up at his face, he would look down into my heart once again with those eyes. So I stayed back. I was in the midst of those people, many of them calling for 
more hurt, more damage, more pain upon him. Interspersed were a few of us who were his followers who were weeping and crying, but I not too loudly, lest I be found out. The shame, the embarrassment, the guilt. Would he ever, ever forgive me? I was close enough that I heard his words. I heard him say to Mary and to John, Behold your mother, behold your son. I heard him say at one moment, I thirst. I heard him speak words of comfort to the man on the cross who was next to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I heard many words. But I will never, ever, ever forget the phrase that spoke to my heart the most. Now I know these years later that that phrase was meant for the executioners. But at that moment, when he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I felt in the depth of my spirit that he was praying for me. That there was hope for me to be forgiven of disobedience, denial, self-will. I realized that this was a modern altar upon which the new Passover lamb's blood was being spilt down the side post of the cross. That his blood was his pathway to purchasing my forgiveness of my sin. That here was the Passover lamb who was spotless, who was without blemish, who was without sin. His blood was being shed to protect me from God's punishment for my sin and disobedience. There was a glimmer of hope in my heart. There was a rising of a new spirit knowing that the cross is what is going to give me forgiveness. And friend, these years later, I know now, it's still the cross. It's still the cross.
I had some hope. I knew that because he loved me and shed his blood, I ought to love him with my very all. But I tell you the truth, that when I walked away from a distance watching them put his body in the tomb, it struck me. He's gone. I have never felt such hopelessness in all my life. I had never felt such emptiness, such hollowness, such grief and such sorrow of losing the one that I had dedicated my life to. I was in a stupor over grief. I really don't remember the rest of that Friday. I don't remember what I did that Saturday. I know that sleep evaded me. I know that I had no appetite for any food. I, I think I just walked around in a daze until it dawned upon me that the streets were becoming a, a maze with people who were like wild dogs who had tasted blood and wanted more. The more the blood of the disciples. So I hurried back and I went into that room where I found several of the other disciples. We didn't speak. We each took our own little corner, sat on our mats, crying and sobbing and not dare saying a word, brokenhearted that Jesus was dead. He'd forgive me, but he's dead. We stayed there, not daring go out, Remembering the words of Jesus that he said, whatever they do to the master, they will do to the disciples. Surely, surely the soldiers from the Sanhedrin will come and arrest us and they'll kill us and the crowds will be excited. So we stayed huddled that Saturday in that room. And I remember lying on my pallet in the evening and I prayed, oh God, oh God, let me fall asleep so I could escape the pain of this reality. Let me go into a fantasy dreamland where it won't hurt so much. Let me go into a stupor of sleep and wake up and find out that this was just a bad dream. But sleep never came. I'm lying on my pallet. And I can see through the crack of the window that dawn and that Sunday morning is starting to come in. The light is shining on the floor. Help me to sleep, help me to sleep. But dawn's light is moving across the room. We have entered another dreary, hopeless day. And suddenly there's a rap at the door. It's firm, it's sharp. Somebody on the other side is on a mission. They are intent. I bolted upright as well as all the disciples in the room and I motioned. Lest it be those guards, those soldiers after us, don't move, don't make a sound. The rapping occurred again. We waited for the voice of that husky soldier to demand we open up. But instead, we heard a soft, sweet, feminine voice and recognized it as one of the Marys that followed Jesus. We all jumped off of our pallets and got to the door at the same time and opened it up and tried to usher her in quickly before somebody would see us. But she was just babbling with excitement and confusion. She started saying something about the stone is rolled away. 
The tomb is empty. His body is missing and an angel said he's alive. I didn't wait to ask any questions. I bolted out that door. And I ran straight towards the gravesite where Jesus was buried. I heard footsteps coming up behind me. Somebody was, was following me. Was it a guard? Was it a soldier? I glanced over my shoulder. It was John. The two of us ran together the rest of the way and came to the tomb, the proper tomb, the right tomb. We weren't foolish. We weren't that ignorant to get to the wrong tomb. And we got there and the stone was rolled away. We looked inside. My friend, it was an amazing sight. There on the mantle of stone were all the grave clothes Jesus had been buried with. They were folded neatly. There was a little bit of a depth to them because of some of the spices that they had time to put between. In, in my land, in our culture, they usually put 70, 80 pounds of spices between the wrappings to help with the smell of decomposition. They hadn't got that far, but there was a little bit of a depth to the grave clothes, but not enough to be holding a body. The body had disappeared. It was clear that if somebody had come in and taken the body, the grave clothes would have been missing, the spices would have been spilled, things would have been mussed up. But everything was neatly in place as if the body had just dematerialized and passed through the fabric. If Jesus had actually not died and just kind of passed out, and then he appeared to be dead, and somebody accidentally buried him in the tomb, and being in the tomb, and in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up on Sunday morning and tried to get out, the grave clothes would be messed up. The spices would be all over, much less how could a weakened man roll away the stone in that condition? Something different has happened. This is no theft. This is no passing out. This is amazing. John and I walked away. We were talking, what could this mean? What could this mean? And then John all of a sudden said, Peter, I think I understand. Do you remember the words of Jesus? That he said, no man takes my life. I laid down my life. Yeah, I remember him saying that. What does that have to do with any of this? Don't you understand? Jesus' death was not in the hands of the Romans or the Jews. Jesus allowed himself to die. He chose this. Do you remember when we were in that garden, that garden where we fell asleep, and when the Roman soldiers and the Jewish soldiers came in and they were going to arrest Jesus, and Jesus said, Who do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Jesus said? Yeah, Jesus responded and said, I am he and all the soldiers fell to the ground in weakness. Peter, don't you get it? Jesus was showing he was in charge. He was in power. And, and when we thought we were sleeping, I, I remember telling you, Peter, that he was all of a sudden praying and an angel came and helped him during that prayer. Surely he could have called 10,000 angels to get him off the cross if he wanted to. He has that much power. 
He was in charge. He didn't die accidentally. This was his plan. If he lays down his or he lays down his life, no man takes it. Okay, John, I understand that, but still, how does that explain the tomb? Don't you remember his next words? I lay down my life, no man takes it. And if I lay down my life, I will take it up again myself. Peter, Jesus came back to life. Oh, John, that's just impossible. How can that be? How can anybody have power over death like that? Peter, don't you remember a few weeks ago when we went to the tomb of Lazarus? We got there four days after he had died. Jesus arrived and said, roll back the stone. And everybody said, no, no, you can't do that. He's decomposing already. He stinks. And Jesus turned to Mary and Martha and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if a man were to die, if he believes in me, he shall live again. Peter, Jesus is saying he has power over death. Remember? Remember when he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, arise. Lazarus, come forth. Do you remember what happened? Oh, yeah. It seemed like an eternity passed. And then all of a sudden, somebody said, I see something in the darkness of the tomb. And then... Lazarus stepped to the front of the tomb and walked out. He didn't have the disease that took his life anymore. He had no signs of decomposing flesh. He was alive. Jesus had power over Lazarus' death. He's alive himself. He brought himself back to life. Peter, don't you get it? My wife says that not only am I impulsive and put my feet in my mouth at times, but she says I'm also thick. I don't think she means I'm strong. I'm thick-headed. This is impossible. This is incredible. Could it possibly be... I don't know what happened to John. I just remember I walked into, his, into a stretch of woods and I sat down on a tree stump and I'm thinking to myself, this would be too amazing. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful if he was alive? And I remember in my mind's eye picturing how Mary and Martha reacted when Lazarus, their loved one, was brought back to life out of the tomb. How they ran as fast as they could and they hugged him and almost suffocated the poor guy. They were so excited to have him back again. And I started daydreaming. What would I do if I saw Jesus? What if I, what if I saw him again? And I pictured in my eye, my mind's eye, that I would run to him. I would grab him and say, Lord, it's such a joy to have you back. And I was thinking those thoughts and even tears of joy were streaming down my face when all of a sudden, as I'm thinking they're daydreaming, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I heard a voice. A voice I knew well. Simon. 
I turned as fast as I could on that tree stump and looked into those eyes, those all-knowing, all-piercing eyes of Jesus, filled and leaping with joy and gladness and victory. And I said, Lord, is it you? Is it really you? But how? How is this possible? He didn't speak a word. But his eyes spoke into my spirit. The words that were spoken to his mother when she wondered how could he be born in a miraculous way? How could he come back in a a miraculous way? The words that flooded my heart, my soul, my spirit were, with God, all things are possible.
to life. Jesus was alive. He was alive once again. I was so excited. I went to tell the others, but he appeared to them as well. And then he appeared to more and more the next days, the next weeks. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him. There are some people who have said to me since I've told them this story, oh, you guys were just having daydreams. Oh, you were having hallucinations. My friend, Jesus appeared multiple places, multiple times, many different events in between in places at different times of the day. At one time, he appeared and walked and talked with us for an extended period. There was 500 of us who can affirm and attest, he's alive, he's alive. We were excited. We were thrilled to have him back. But then, 50 days after, he took us out of the city, told us we need to share his story and tell others about it. And then all of a sudden, he started to ascend up from the ground. He was going higher and higher and said he was returning to heaven to his father. We watched and then the clouds covered him and we know he's still alive. We are thrilled to know that because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, Jesus has purchased our forgiveness and the forgiveness of every individual who would put their faith and trust in Jesus and him alone to get into heaven. Jesus is alive, willing to forgive because of his death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension. He has purchased to himself the throne of heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation, over all of heaven because he died, buried, resurrected, and ascended. We know that one day, he will bring that heavenly rule down to this earth and combine heaven and earth and give eternal life so that all of us who would live with him, who choose to live with his heaven on earth, will be given resurrected bodies like his that will never have diseases, that will never suffer death, that will never have any aches or pains. We know that because he's risen and ascended up into heaven... He has purchased the right to be praised by every creature here on earth and in heaven. He deserves the glory and the praise. And one day we will join with the angels and we will call out loud, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain! And give Him glory and honor and the praise He deserves. Because He died, buried, resurrected, and ascended up on high... He deserves my trust, my dedication to live for Him. He deserves your trust, your dedication, your determination to follow Him no matter what, to do His will, because He's the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and He's alive. Amen. He is on the throne. Now, there are some that I tell this story to, and they believe they say, I want to make sure I'm with Jesus one day. There are some. Well, they say, not for me. And there are some who say, it's too good to be true. I tell you, it is true. 
He is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed.
He's alive and He wants to give you eternal life so you stay alive for all eternity. If you've never accepted that free gift of Jesus Christ, why don't you make this day the greatest anniversary of your life? Why don't you accept God's free gift of salvation? Ask Him to forgive you of all your sins that you have ever done in the past, the present, the future. Ask Jesus to give you life eternal to allow you to come into heaven, to live with Him. All you need to do is admit that you are a sinner and on your own you cannot work your way into heaven. You need to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by Him. You need to call upon Him. Confess that He is Lord and He is alive. And call upon Him to be your personal Savior. You say, well, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to pray. Can I make it really, really simple for you? I'm going to have some of our staff head over to that doorway right now. And I'm going to invite any of you here in this room, when we pray in a moment with heads bowed, if you have yet to ask Christ and you're not sure what to do, what to pray, then you can get up. You can go and talk with any of those men, those ladies who will be standing out there. There's rooms down that hallway and they will show you how you can be sure. Let's make this really simple without embarrassing anybody. Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's stand so that if somebody's on the inside of the pew, they can get past. And as our instrumentalist plays through a hymn about this amazing grace, if you would like to talk with somebody right now, right now, slip out of that pew and go and talk with one of those individuals by that side door, they will gladly show you how you can be sure. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. You've been invited by a friend. Maybe the two of you want to go and pray privately together. Take advantage of this right now. Make sure you're on your way to heaven. He's alive. He wants to give you eternal life. Won't you take his gift this morning? Step out. Go and talk with one of those individuals so you get to learn about the amazing grace of Jesus Christ.